Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast with Amy Wheeler. We're a global community of yoga therapists and related professionals who are sharing our knowledge and experience with one another to make the world a better place for all of us to thrive. On this podcast, we have deep and thought-provoking conversations that we hope will nourish you and make you feel more connected to yourself and to others. Feel free to continue these conversations on our private Facebook group called Yoga Therapy Hour Podcast with Amy Wheeler. And listen at the end of the podcast each week as we'll be giving away a special gift. Remember, we have a mobile app coming out May 2nd, 2022 that tracks mental health and so much more using the foundations of yoga and Ayurveda. Today, I talk with my long-term friend and colleague, Arun Deva, and I think you're in for a very special treat. We cover the whole gamut. We start off in this conversation talking about what is an Ayurvedic yoga therapist and why is it important that yoga therapy and Ayurveda, and I would add Sankhya philosophy, stay together as they originally came to be. So we start off on kind of a a note of being rebels and saying things that people don't oftentimes say out loud. (laughs) And I think we trust each other enough to just have really good conversations. Arun and I oftentimes will just call each other in the middle of the day and have a very in-depth conversation. So this conversation is kind of you getting to listen to Arun and I's normal everyday friendship that we've had for many years, but we just recorded it this time. But the place that we ended up going towards the middle of the podcast, which I'm going to call the the queen pose or the king pose of this podcast, was all about what does Arun want to feel and know to be true? And who does he want to be at his last breath, at that moment where he sheds this body and moves into that liminal space before he gets his next body. So we get, we get deep in this conversation. And then that circles back to what does he and I and you, what do we want to do to make the most of this life while we are here in this body, our physical body, as well as our subtle body? So I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. I know I did. And I introduce to you Arun Deva. Om Gam Ganapatiye Namaha Om Bhagavate Shri Ramadutaya Namaha Om Reem Shri Lakshmi Dio Namaha Om Gurave Sarva Lokanam Bhashaje Bhavarubhinam 
Welcome, Arun Deva. Thank you for that opening chant. It's so nice to see you, bright eyed. And I'm just happy to have my friend here for a nice, a nice talk about what matters to us both, which is yoga therapy, life, healing, and beyond. And so beyond. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. I'm, I'm so happy to be able to do this. And you are just such a bright light in the field of yoga therapy. And I love all the work that you do. Thank you. I have good teachers and mentors like you (laughs) 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 supporting me every step of the way. So you and I have worked together on a couple of projects. One of them being helping NAMA or the national Ayurvedic medical association come up with standards for an Ayurvedic yoga therapist. And even after I got off the committee, you continued on to the work and continued to grandparent people into the NAMA Ayurvedic Yoga Therapy Program, which I honor you for. But I want to go all the way back to the beginning and and talk about how did you first envision something called an Ayurvedic Yoga Therapist? Well, you have time for a, a quick story? We have all the time in the world. (laughs) So I think it was 2002, I was at the Ayurvedic Institute in New Mexico, taking my first class with uh, Dr. Vasantlad, who is, of course, one of our, you know, one of our heroes in the Ayurvedic world in America, at least. He had a little bit of an issue with his lower back, and I offered to do a little work on him and on the break he just took me and took me into his office and and i did a little work on him and he came back and he goes oh my god you know this is amazing and everything and he goes you know he he can be a little effusive and so he was and i'm here there i am sitting a little embarrassed and then he turns around he goes you should marry yoga and ayurveda and i'm sitting there and i'm thinking to myself wow i mean this is something that is in my heart. I, I, I feel this. I've, I've been feeling this before he said anything. He's psychic. Or, you know, all these thoughts are going through my head. Of course, I find out later on that he says the same to everybody. <laughs> but, but, but I took him at it. And I took him at it because it was already in my mind. I could not see in the field of therapy, how we could separate yoga and Ayurveda. So it's not, it never was for me of trying to put the two together. But for me, it was always a question of how can you even think of them as separate in the field of therapy? Which is in and of itself so interesting because I I do think through our Western kind of colonial lens or mindset, people have actually separated them. And I like what you said, that they belong together and they always were together. Yoga, Ayurveda, Sankhya philosophy. So I guess my, my question then is, 
how to make sure they come back together and stay together. I mean, that's, that's really, I think what you are doing in the world is showing us how they originally were in the beginning and shall forever be. I think there's two parts to it. One is, of course, you know, there needs to be law and order in this coming together. And so you need an organization that's willing to say, okay, I will put together whatever is needed for this to be a viable entity. But really, the two of them coming together is happening in the fact that many people who are studying to be yoga teachers are going on to study Ayurveda. And many people who are wanting to become Ayurvedic practitioners, as they go into it, they find themselves being drawn to yoga. So there is a there is an organic happening to this also. And as long as the organizations and the two organizations that may have some say in this, one is obviously IYT, the International Association of Yoga Therapists, but the other, as you mentioned earlier, is NAMA, which is the National Ayurvedic Medical Association. And so both of them, understanding this, in fact, offer us two paths. One is for a yoga therapist trained in yoga therapy through the Western Eye Mm -hmm. to take in some of the benefits of Ayurveda, And at the same time, for the Ayurvedic institution, there is the obvious Ayurvedic approach, which of course makes a lot of sense because Ayurveda and yoga speak the same language, but also to communicate with the society, they need to take in the Western perspective. So in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if we allow it to happen, it's inevitable. Right. And, you know, there's a third organization, APNA, A-A-A-P-N-A, which I'm not going to try to remember what all that stands for, but it's an Ayurvedic association with uh, now an Ayurvedic yoga therapist track. So, I mean, it seems like this idea is really starting to blossom in the field. And I think what's what I'm seeing is the people who maybe have taken more of a westernized version of yoga therapy, they're realizing that it's actually not enough that without the healing aspects of both Ayurveda and Sankhya philosophy, the rearrangement of the gunas inside of our human system, it's not as strong as it could be. And I think when we were on this committee together, trying to figure out the standards for an Ayurvedic yoga therapist, I mean, there was a lot of really tough discussions around that, you know, can, can you even call yourself a yoga therapist if you're not understanding Ayurveda or and Sankhya philosophy? So. Yeah, I, I think that's a little extreme, but there is great value in knowing Ayurveda because for one thing, look, when we talk about therapy, and I think you and I have discussed this in the past, when we talk about therapy, there is no such thing as therapy without a diagnosis. Yeah, how can there be? It, 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 you know, you, you have to have a diagnosis. So yoga, in terms of diagnosis, you know, what does it use? It's used as the Panchamaya Kosha model. It uses the gunas. 
the trigona. Uh, so it uses models that already exist in the language and the framework of a medical science. And of course, I'm referring to Ayurveda. That language does not exist in the Western language, so in the Western medical field. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you bring yoga and Western medical or modern medic- medicine together, you're going to have to do a lot of translating because they're not the same language. And they- it's messy. Like we can't even use the word diagnosis because that is a word for medical professionals and we don't want to be accused of practicing medicine. So we say assessment or co-assessment because the word has already been taken by Western medicine. Well, you bring up a point that needs to be brought up is that we're, we're using a language and a medical platform that doesn't even care if we exist. In, in some respects, they wish we'd go away, <laughs> you know, not at the individual level. I mean, you and I both know that there are some amazing, amazing, you know, medical doctors out there and they embrace it. And and if it wasn't for people like Dean Ornish, maybe that even wouldn't be there. You know, he brought some validity to it. So, yes, it needs to be done. We need to be done. But let's remember that they don't welcome us as much as we welcome them. Right. And I've kind of gotten over that, though, honestly, like for a (laughs) long, long time, I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to show the evidence based medicine. And you know what I want to do now? Just show the results. Just give me someone with chronic pain or autoimmune and I'll fix them up for you or self-empower the person to fix themselves up. Like, I don't I don't need to prove myself anymore. I don't know how you're feeling, but I just feel like, okay, I'm just going to do the work and let that speak for itself. How do you feel? Well, I think I pretty much felt that way all along. I always thought I was a rebel for feeling that way. So I'm glad that you feel that way too. <laughs> but, you know, always from, right from the beginning, for me, it's always been just do the work. To be very honest, I don't make a great yoga therapist in terms of applying it through the medical lens. For me, it was easy to commit to creating an Ayurvedic yoga therapist because that's how I thought. It came naturally to me. Of course, it came naturally to me because I've studied both sciences, but also because having studied both sciences side by side right from the beginning, right from the start of my journey, I have this distinguishment of never being able to separate the two. You know, for many people, we're trying to put the two together. For me, I've never been able to separate the two. So, yes, I I, I agree with you that as long as we're doing the work and we're getting the results, who cares whether we're accepted or not? But on a bigger level, it is important that we be accepted because as we go mainstream, we can bring more because you and I know how much benefit this could bring. I I, I agree. And I just got tired, I think. I think I got tired. So I'm like, I'm going to do my thing. And if we all do our thing, they're going to see what we're doing. They're going to see the results. And let's just do that. And you could convince me otherwise, Arun. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, big no. picture. <laughs> but right no. now I'm just tired of, of trying. Like, please like me. Please see what we're doing. It's amazing, you know? Well, not only am I not going to dissuade you from that, 
but you're just basically quoting Krishna right now. <laughs> you know, just do the work. <laughs> Don't be attached to the, uh, to the results. I, I think what I'm saying is that for us to be as successful as we would like, not on a personal level, but on the bigger level, because you're a teacher. Yeah. More than anything else, you're a teacher. You have a school, you, you teach yoga therapy. So, you know, your students need to go out in that world and be accepted. That's true. So from, from their perspective, it's important. Okay, that... now you got me. <laughs> I'm back in. <laughs> from a personal perspective, you and I couldn't give a yeah. fill in the blank. <laughs> yeah. So what are what are some of the reasonably expected outcomes? You know, like when we talk to our students or we talk to medical doctors or anyone who is willing to listen. You know, we have this, what I call in Western terms, like a lifestyle medicine is what we're doing. And when they say, well, what are, what can we expect from the work that you're doing? What do you say? Life change. When you go to a doctor for a headache, he gives you a pill and your headache goes away, but it's, it's, it's never really gone. It's just going to come back. So you're on a regiment of taking a pill. And then at some point the pill stops working. And then we'd look at the next stage or because the pill has been causing other stuff going on in your body. Now we're looking at something else that we have to address. So there's no, there's no requirement on your part to do anything other than take the pill. And so you agree to that. You agree to that because you don't want the pain. Someone comes to us and says, I have a headache. And we start asking questions such as, revolving around their lifestyle, their diet, how they sleep, when they sleep, what are their stress levels, what's going on with them. What we're doing is we're digging, we're trying to find out why they're having a headache. We're not just saying, oh, you're having a headache, take a pill. We've got great pills for you. It'll take your headache away, right? We, we do something else. We sit down with them and we say, let's figure out why you're having a headache. So there's, you know, there's two parts to this. One is it becomes life-changing because now that we've figured out why you're having a headache, something has to change if you want the headache to go away and not take a pill. Or take a pill and do the lifestyle management. Sure. Yeah. We're not cruel. We want to address the fact that you're in pain. So, you know, we may give them something else. I mean, instead of a pill, we may give them an herbal uh, decoction or we may suggest, you know, a massage. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a massage will take away, or we may suggest, you know, other things, you know, like uh, certain things. It, it could be having to do with your digestion. Your headache could have to do with your, what's going on in your gut. It could be related to your sinuses. So we're trying to figure this out. And as we figure it out, we take away the cause of the, uh, pain and the pain's gone away. But in the meantime, you know, here's an oil, rub it on your forehead and the pain's gone away too. Right. You don't even have to take a pill that's going to put a, uh, put some kind of stress on your liver. And, and there's nothing in this that is revolutionary. In fact, it's what we did for thousands of years before we got the aspirin or uh, it's grandmother's wisdom. Yeah. On some level. Yes, it is on grandmother's grandmother's wisdom. And I think the other thing that is kind of revolutionary 
is this idea of self-reflection, self-awareness, and self-regulation, right? That we have to observe ourselves if we are the client or the student. We have to be empowered to make these shifts and figure out a way to get up early enough to be able to do that practice in the morning or that oil massage or make a, a breakfast, you know, hot cooked breakfast. So I think, you know, it's really different. We can, we can give the students all the support and here's what you need to do, but they can't just pop the pill. They actually have to rearrange their lives in order to rearrange the gunas inside of them. I like where you're going with this. We arrange, we help people rearrange their lives. <laughs> I like that. Well, you know, isn't that what a doctor should do? Help you rearrange the habits, if you wish, mm -hmm. that are hurting you. Absolutely. But we know it takes time, support, hand-holding. Sometimes we have to build the hope or the faith in the student before they can make these changes. And I, I just think many healthcare professionals don't have the time for that, like we do. Which is unfortunate because, you know, when you don't have the time for your patient, you're shortchanging your patient. And of course, I understand that. I mean, there are so many rules and regulations around being a physician in, in the modern age that are, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to get into trouble, but... If we think about it, you know, we, we don't we have shackle, to say it around. <laughs> we shackle our doctors. Yes. I don't think they even want to work in that environment. It's, Why would it's not they? their fault? Not They're, at all. 80% of them are burnt out right now. Trust me, I know that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I see how hard they work. Yeah. And how much heart and care. It's a very unreasonable situation that they're in. No question about it. No question about it. So if you think about it, their heart in what they do is very much there. Yeah. And thank God for them. I mean, both you and I go to Western allopathic doctors who do things that save our lives, right? It, it, that it's not, not that we don't appreciate them. Absolutely. There's no question. What I think what you and I both would like to see is a more friendly relationship between the sciences, between the cultures, right? between ancient medicine. I'm not going to say Ayurveda because that's limiting it to one particular ancient medicine. I'm going to say between ancient medicine and modern medicine. I, I believe they both have something to offer to each other. Right. Yes, we've discussed this, that the ancient medicine is actually to teach you how to live your life to prevent the problems mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically from happening. And allopathic medicine is really, really good for once we're in a pretty tough spot with a broken leg or a heart problem or, or whatnot, please let us come and receive your blessings, right? You know, I think Western medicine and triage, if you wish, is incredible in helping you change your karma. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe your karma is to have a heart attack and die and Western medicine comes along and goes, no, sorry. We're, we're, we've figured out how to change that. 
we're going to change your karma to where you have to continue living in this body for some more time. <laughs> you have more karma to burn off. Come back. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't new, you know. I mean, it's it's it, you and I understand the concept of the two pathways in old age for our yoga. And one of them is the acquiring of siddhis mm-hmm. so that you can extend your life and complete more karma. So, you know, I like to tell people if you've been given a second chance of life, maybe you want to do things a little bit different in the second part of your life. Maybe you don't want to put yourself back, you know, maybe you don't want to keep doing the same thing that got you there in the first place. So along those lines, Arun, what would you say in Ayurvedic yoga therapy is the most powerful tool to help you heal from the inside out on all the layers, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically? What Do you think there's one or do you think you must use all of them together? Wow. Well... If there is one, it has to be challenging, right? It must not contradict the yoga of the Bhagavad Gita. It must not contradict the yoga of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. These are the two uh, core texts that, that uh, you know, one is for a renunciate in the sense of renouncing on a physical level and going and living in a hut, which is the Yoga Sutras. The other is renouncing on a spiritual level and then continuing with your work. So they both are about renouncing attachment, right? So in the Yoga Sutras and in the Bhagavad Gita, both Patanjali and Krishna say the easiest pathway is bhakti. So if we take bhakti as a healing tool in yoga therapy, It can be applied across the board. For me personally, right now, the most important tool in my therapy bag is chanting. So to some degree, I believe that brings us emotional comfort. Yes. And if we are right in in Ayurvedic terminology that the root of all our suffering is in the emotional body, then we're going right to the core. And let's face it, with chanting, you get the long exhalations happening, right? Which is going to have an impact on the parasympathetic nervous system or the autonomic nervous system. But you also get bhavana, you know, this very, very powerful tool, whatever it is you're chanting to or for, imagining this and bringing it inside of you. So it's almost like you you get a power-packed punch with bhakti and especially with chanting. And you validate quantum physics <laughs> in, in the process, you know, yeah. you are responsible for the changes. <laughs> so chanting does that. Chanting, yes. On a personal level, I, I find that chanting is uh, the core of yoga therapy. And how do you, what if you have someone that comes to you who is a Christian or Muslim or Jewish and they're really not that interested in Hindu mantra. So you must honor that. You must honor wh- where they come from. 
you are of no use to them if you do not honor their own traditions. Yoga is not a religion. Right. Yoga is not, uh, I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. It's so I'll, I'll, I'll modify it. You're a it's, rebel. <laughs> it's not restricted to Hindus. Oh. Yoga is not restricted to Hindus. Ishwara is just a Vishesha Purusha. You know what I'm talking about. In other words, th there's a special being and, and that we can relate with. And if you want to relate to that through religion, please do. If you want to relate it through religion, why do you need a different religion to relate it through? Just relate it through your own religion. So if, if, if you know, if, if chanting has to be done, there are beautiful chants in every religion. But yoga does not necessarily mean chanting a particular... Yoga could be chanting, ah, ooh. Yeah, in the Yoga Sutra, this word pranavaha. Pranavaha. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that word, because I think it really is the essence of what you're saying right now. Vaha means to go. So to take you somewhere. So it is what will take you to you is your prana. And one way to express the prana is through sound. Now, if we, if we deconstruct the, the most sacred sound in this tradition, which is Om, if we deconstruct it, then we find symbolically that it is a very, it is the merging of three sounds, a, u, and ma. Now, a requires you to open your mouth. So, a is a symbol for the beginning. U requires you to keep your mouth in an open position, but allows you to do it for a long period of time. So, it represents a span of life. Ma requires you to close your mouth. So that's the ending. So in a sense, the word om does not have to have any religious con connotation. All it means is a symbology for the length of your life. The beginning of your life, the end of your life, and the more time you spend in the O, the length of your life, the health of your life. As you have mentioned already, in the process of just chanting this, look at the exhalation. And what exhalation does is it allows us to clear our lungs. Mm. And there's no way you can chant without, if you try it, you have to take a deep breath. And to take a deep breath, your spine automatically lengthens. You cannot take a deep breath without lengthening your spine. You know, in future, if you want to tell someone to straighten their spine, just tell them to take a deep breath. <laughs> I'm not saying this to you. You know this, but I'm saying this to your listeners. Just tell them to, don't say straighten your spine. Just say, take a deep breath. Spine straightens. With that straight spine, when you exhale, and you let it continue, you are reaching into the parts of your lungs that haven't seen prana in a while. And, and then when you're exhaling, you, so much of that will even leave it at the emotional level. So much of the stuff that we've stuffed into our system, into our lungs, if you wish. You know, in, in Ayurvedic terminology, lungs are the seat of grief. Mm -hmm. How much have we stuffed in there? 
Yeah. We let that go. It has symbolic meaning. So you can take it past the religious meaning to the symbolic meaning. I completely agree. I think anytime we add sound to our asana practice or pranayama or meditation, and that sound could be out loud, it could be very subtle movements of the lips, and it could be silent. Like Yes. Yeah, those are the three steps in, in chanting. The first step is to just chant it out loud. Second is under your breath. And the third is internally, as, as you as you just stated. Yes. So, you know, uh, this is something that we can, uh, we can see as a progressive lesson for our students, because that's what I like to call people who come to see us. They're our students. They're coming to us to learn how to take care of themselves. You know? And I, I think they're always surprised. They they think that the chanting out loud is like a stronger vibration going out into the universe. And in my experience, they're always very inquisitive about, well, why would we do it silently? Not understanding that that very subtle imprint still has a vibration, which is even more powerful than the gross tangible one that is expressed through our speech or chanting out loud. I found the beauty of this is that you allow them to chant out loud and there comes a day on their own when it becomes softer, eventually leading to under the breath. And at that point, they feel the power of it. You definitely do need to meet them where they are and where they are is loud. <laughs> you know, our world is loud, Amy. <laughs> it's true. And I think there's something very powerful about hearing the feedback in your own ears of your own voice. Like when a student is like, oh, I don't like how I sound. Well, that's interesting. Can you explore that within yourself? Yeah. You know? or I'm embarrassed that people are going to hear me. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Let's explore that. You know, I, we end up bringing up for people a lot of questions about why things are the way they are, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, so in that sense, we're very rebellious. <laughs> we teach people to go against the grain, so to speak. And we do it because we, we believe that so much of the way we, are, we currently live, our world lives, is unhealthy. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you say most of the students that come to you with serious imbalance and physical and mental and emotional and spiritual health issues, it's because they're trying to live in a very unreasonable job or relationship or expectations that their system just can't can't process and digest and deal with. It's it's asking too much of our systems to live in this modern life that we've created. Yeah, I marvel at how how ingenious our systems are that we are able to survive in this toxic soup that is our world today, <laughs> you know, and, and yet, you know, this, this amazing uh, engineering feat that is uh, a living body, not just any human body, but many 
of our animal species, we can survive in. And we humans are a perfect example of this. I mean, we live in, we live in Alaska. We live in the Mojave Desert. Mm. Yeah. We talk about adaptable. We are incredibly adaptable, but we pay the price. We pay the price. And until we can change our world, the best we can do is learn how to live within it. And that's one of the things that you and I teach people is how to live in this world, how to minimize the effect of this world upon us. Not this world in, in that sense, but in the sense of the toxicity of this world. You know, our, our water is polluted. Our and it appears that it's very quickly shifting even more you know, with the wars and COVID and climate change. I mean, we have our work cut out for us, I believe. Well, I think this is a cause of a lot of people's trauma is the situation in my world is overwhelming, you know? And, and I, I believe part of the reason why it's so overwhelming is because not so much that there's something new going on, but with the internet. The world is connected. So what used to be, you know, you were restricted to what was happening within your community, then your, you know, then your country. Now it's a worldwide situation. And this, what's going on in Ukraine is showing us how connected we all are. Because we're feeling it within ourselves as though we ourselves are being hurt. I don't know about you, but I wake up every morning and my first thought is what's happening in Ukraine? Are they okay? Can I send prana and love? I mean, it is, it, it is if we are truly connected, even though I've never been to Ukraine, you know, and I, oof, it's a lot. So, so how do you handle crisis and disappointment and overwhelm and difficulty what do you what do you do, Arun, to help through these difficult times? Yoga. Unpack that for us, please. So, uh, basically, if we if we pay attention to what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, of course, he describes yoga three or four times in the text. But the one that stays with me is yoga is the equanimity of mind. Equanimity of mind means that the mind will not be disturbed by what's going on. It's not that the mind is now just a cold, <laughs> emotionless organ, but that we have to become stronger than the situation, or we are never going to be of any help to anyone, especially for those of us who this is our work. We need to be there for others. So in being there for others, you know, the most authentic way of being there for others is as an example. Yeah. So us learning these things that we teach others about. So what does yoga teach us? Yoga teaches us minimize the amount of harm you do in this world. So it's a moralistic code. Yeah. You know, try not to take things that don't belong to you. It's a moralistic code. You know, uh, don't lust. Don't lust. Don't desire, which goes against the grain because 
in a consumer-based society, we're taught to desire. And here comes yoga and says, enjoy, but don't desire. Right. In fact, you'll find more enjoyment when you let go of desire because there's no expectation. And expectation always trips up the enjoyment you're going to get from whatever you, you, you're enjoying. <laughs> you know, I'm enjoying a mango. My expectation is tripping me up because my expectation is of the last mango I ate. And this one is just not measuring up to it. And maybe I can get a different mango. <laughs> and maybe I can get a different mango or, or you know. <laughs> maybe a second a or a third mango. <laughs> well, let's take it further. Maybe I can get a different wife. Well, I, I was thinking that I was interchanging mango for just about anything that you want to insert in. And then when you get to the Niyama, Santosha. Be content. When you're content, anything that's given to you is like, a gift. It's, it's so much. So, in fact, I am very clear. You should not begin your asana practice until you have, to some degree, committed yourself to the yama and the niyama. If nothing else, yeah. for health purposes. Because asana, it, which is supposed to uh, create sukhamstiram, which is supposed to create the ease and the, and, and the comfort and the stability of the body without the use of uh, yama, without the understanding of yama and niyama, asana can do the opposite. It can hurt you. It can create discomfort. Yep. And we see that every day, which is why yoga therapy is such a big field. Help, helping all the yogis come back from injury. Yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing. It's not even funny, but it. And I myself have been there grasping we both to, have. Do, to do the poses I could do 10 years ago, pushing too hard. Yeah, we, we are being taught how to practice yoga. We are not being taught how to practice yoga safely. With awareness and ability to be present in our bodies, how they're showing up on the mat today. Yeah. You and I and, and, and so many others seek out the, the tradition of yoga. Mm. And those of us who seek out the tradition of yoga suddenly realize that what we've been doing, why has it hurt us or why has it not taken us to where yoga says it's supposed to take us is because we were not doing yoga the way we're supposed to. It's so interesting, you know, the, the style of yoga that both you and I practice, the Krishnamacharya tradition and the slow, steady, breath-based, coordinated with movement, it, it just is painful for me to see students who think it's too slow and too boring and not enough of a workout in some cases, although I think it can be very challenging in terms of the physical, but because their expectation is of something faster with music, with this and that, and, you know, all this stuff added in. And it's, it's kind of painful to watch people not appreciate the beauty of that slow breath-based practice. This is so powerful. How do you feel about that? I have some sympathy. I have some sympathy for, they're, they're coming to yoga because it's, a, it's, 
It's the rage. <laughs> and so they want something that fits into their particular lifestyle, you know, which includes doing exercise to music. And so can they get any benefit out of it? I believe they can. I believe they can. But I also noticed that after some time, one of two things happen. One is they just give it up. Mm-hmm. Or they start to wonder because it affects them. Right. What it'll be like to do this without the music. What it'll be like to do this with the breath. And, and then they'll, they'll do that. They'll start going to the more serious class, the class where they're learning something, not just having a physical workout. And, and then they get attracted. They get attracted to the class that has some pranayama going on. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they become a little bit more open to the sitting at the end and allowing yourself to be quiet for a little while. So I'm okay with them starting there. Me too. I, I will say that. <laughs> and I do think the yoga world is maturing. No question. I mean, that all of us and myself included that were doing all this really hard workout yoga 20 years ago, the whole community is starting to lean into breath-based and pranayama and meditation, you know? Well, take Anjali. You know, she's... Her daughter. Active. Yes. <laughs> in case you uh, don't know, this is Arun's daughter, Anjali Deva. Or in case you don't know, this is Anjali's father. <laughs> That's right. She is a superstar. She is a superstar. And I am blessed. Um, look, Anjali is at that age where you and I were doing crazy stuff. We've matured our younger generations. Mm, yeah. She was done with that stage by the time she was 16. Yeah. You know, and so now she's a popular yoga teacher because she's teaching people and they feel safe and they feel better and they feel the state of trauma coming down. Yeah. So many of us are, are, living fast-paced lives because we don't want to face our traumas. That's right. And and I have compassion for that. And I've been there. You know, when you say that you're more willing to meet them, I get that. I, I have lived that. I know you have, I know you have, I've seen you teach. (laughs) So Arun, this is going to be a hard question, but I feel like we've gone kind of deeper and deeper and deeper. And now we're at the, almost like the queen pose of our podcast. What, when you take your last breath, what do you want to know or feel or be in that moment? No feel and be. Or, so. or, or insert your own word. No, I'm going to answer all through those. Okay. I, I want to know that I did the work. The work on your own karma? Not for the sake of karma, but because I am committed to finding peace. Mm. And I am of the belief that, you know, all I'm going to do is shed this body. That's it. So this new body that I'm going to have to take, I've done the work to make that the best body I can make it wherever I'm going. 
whatever going to happen. What I want to feel at that moment is what I don't want to feel. I don't want to feel fear. Mm. I don't want to feel fear at that moment. You know, I want to, and I don't want to feel excitement either. Ooh, I get a brand new body. <laughs> no, I, I, I want to, I want to feel, I want to feel awake. And would I want to be as ready as I can? Which, you know, as we know from the Yoga Sutras, Abhinavesha, that fear is one of them. Even, you know, uh, what do our sutras tell us? That they tell us even the great scholar, even the, the great yogi has fear at that moment. So I respect that I will have fear in that moment. I just want to minimize this as possible. And I want to be there for me. So we know you don't want to feel fear, but would you say the opposite of that? The thing you do want to feel is a very deep shraddha or, or faith or trust or conviction? Well, we're really going deep now, aren't we? <laughs> you know, it isn't so much that I should have shraddha. I, I, um, that's a given. That's a given. I, I want to have shraddha. It is, what does that faith mean to me? I, I definitely do not want it to be blind faith. And so, you know, uh, I have questions around this faith. I have a lot of questions around this faith. So what does it mean to me? What it means to me at that moment, what I have shraddha in, is that nothing is ending. This I have shot time. I will have another chance. This I have shot time. I have made a commitment in this life, and I don't know about previous lives, in this life, that going forward, if there is a forward, the trajectory is not going to change. I am seeking peace. I'm seeking peace. This is... I'm very clear. I'm not seeking riches. I'm not seeking this. I'm not seeking that. I'm seeking peace, peace of the heart. And as our language teaches us, the heart is the seat of the mind. That's right. In the West, we confuse the mind with the brain. You know, the brain is an instrument. It's, 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 it's a very important instrument. It's, it's how we can physically function make our mind function but the seat of the mind is the heart and i think we all know this because if, if somebody asks me where are you i don't go here i go here right so we all know that we know that this is where we live so this has to be the seat of the mind so i know that the mind continues i have no question about this this i have shraddhaya this I absolutely have shraddhaya. But the patterns of the mind, my yoga teaches me, because the patterns of the mind are sattva, rajas, and tamas. So the rajas and the tamas drops away. So the only pattern of the mind that continues after death is sattva. And then the rajas and tamas that is going to create new life come back in. But in that time that I have just pure sattva, can I take advantage of it? So I'm actually planning all the things that I want to do 
after I die. <laughs> in your new body. No, before I get my new body. In, 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 the, in just, between. While I'm just still just mind. Before I become physical again. I, I'm really resonating with what you're saying. And I've never told this short story before, but I'm going to tell it because it, it just fits with this. On the night that my mother passed away, I was on an airplane to go see her. And I got there too late and ended up, you know, going to bed in her home and she was no longer on earth. And she came to me in a dream about two o'clock in the morning and, and took me through her whole life, like, you know, picture frame by picture frame. And I was crying and I was hysterical in this dream. Mom, what do you come back? And she said, honey, I am fine. It is wonderful. It is amazing. I feel so good. Please, please, please don't feel sad. You know, and I've really taken that to heart that, that she was okay wherever she was and at peace. And I, I think that's what you're saying, right? Yes. And it validates what our texts have told us that I, all the Rajas and Thomas drops off for a little while. And, and I like to call it as we enter the cosmic mother's womb. Mm. You know, she's breathing for us, as any mother does in the womb. Uh, the mother breathes for you. But our earth mother, our earth mother, our, our, is obviously breathing through sattva rajas and tamas, not just through sattva. Whereas the cosmic mother is breathing only through sattva. So for a short time, you know, you're, you're free of... It's an opportunity. Even the Buddhists talk about this in, in, the, in the question of the bardos. It's like you move into where you have this opportunity. You have a short span window in which, you know, everything is absolutely 100% clear. Mm. And then your karmas catch up with you when you get clouded again and you start seeing through, you know, the lenses and everything. <laughs> your your so, subtle body takes all the Exactly. Trudging along behind you goes, okay, time to put on the suit again. And, you know, prepare you for the next life. But there is a short window. How long so, do you think that window could be? Well, you know, uh, the Tibetans say 40 days, but... Uh, I believe in that window there we can't quantify it in terms of uh, in terms of time. Mm. It, it's a you know um, time is a perception. Time isn't real. Yep. Time is a perception we use for measurement. You know, it's created by us. Animals have different sense of time. Babies have a different sense of time. Teenagers have a different sense of time. All people have a different sense of time. Traumatized people have a different sense of time. Yogis have a different sense of time. And then there is the quantifiable time that we've all taken to be based on, you know, based on planetary movements. Time is a man-created concept that we use to regulate our lives. It's and not going to apply in the bardo. It's not going to apply in this, in this place. And in Indian philosophy, number one, there is no such thing as time. It's not, <laughs> not linear. It's cyclical, right? And I don't even think our little brains can comprehend that, actually. 
Well, it, we we can. We just don't think of it. If we it's cyclical, of course it is. I mean, the seasons are cyclical. The days and nights are cyclical. All our measurements of time are cyclical. Which of our measurements of time is not cyclical? We go from birth to old age to death to birth to old age to death. You know, there's everything is cyclical. We we know this. We don't get it. This is this is the number one source of ignorance. This impermanence literally means repetition. Tell us more about that. I like that phrase. It's everything is recycled. There's nothing new. Everything is recycled. There's not a single emotion we have that we haven't already had. On the feeling level, we've gone through it all. Over and over and over again. Yeah. On the physical level, it seems new because it's configured just a little bit different. That's all. <laughs> I've been here before, but <laughs> feels like the first time, you know? Yeah. So, Arun, one of my last questions will be, what piece of advice would you give to our listeners regarding all that you've said today around health, healing, and beyond? Like, is there anything that you'd like to be sure that they take away from this conversation, something that they could apply or reflect on or be with? Because I feel like you're a very wise, wise man. <laughs> well, you know, wisdom is something that it's one of the gifts of the practice of yoga. I think of you as a very wise person. You know, and you've earned it. You've earned it because you've put in your time, you've put in your work. And, and yoga is not, yoga is not a religion. Okay. Yoga is a way of life. So I would say to people who want to know what yoga is, yoga is a way of life that can bring you comfort, better health, peace of mind. And it does this because it's set up to do this. The function so, of it. Yes. So if you follow the tradition of yoga, which is first and foremost, control your emotional body. We have a tendency to get angry and then cause harm. We have a tendency to crave and thus steal. We have a tendency to passion and thus lust. We have all, all the activities of the vrittis, right? The, the consequences of these states of mind that don't serve us. That is correct. And so 
these these are things that belong in every religion. Mm. At the core of every religion is don't harm, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal. There is not a single religion at the core of which this is not there. So yoga does not contradict your religion. And so if you approach it from that perspective, yoga is nothing other than a tool we can use to improve the quality of our lives in the here and now, leading to better karma, which leads to better life in the then. Yoga therapy is to help you get to yoga. I love that. Yoga therapy is to help you get to yoga. To even stabilize your body and mind and spirit to a degree where you could start to experience the true manifestation of having peace in your last breath. Having sattva in that time between this life and the next Don't restrict your yoga to a yoga studio, a yoga class, a workout. Don't restrict it to that. In fact, as you go deeper into the yoga, uh, you will need less of the physical workout. Although, although if we look at the three sutras on yoga, uh, on uh, asana in the yoga sutras, the third one, is basically saying that through the practice of, uh, of uh, this, this physical workout, this physical workout, you can get to a place where three things no longer bother you. The effect of the senses on your body, hot and cold. The effect of the senses on your mind, pleasant and unpleasant. And the effect on your spirit longing for and accepting. And in the order of the sutras that that comes, next sutras are talking about pratyahara or the senses turning inward. Do you feel those things have to happen kind of as a precursor to pratyahara turning inward, leading into meditation? Do you feel it's linear like that? I've always had some difficulty grasping pratyahara. In fact, there is no guidelines on pratyahara until much later texts. How do you do pratyahara? You know? It's uh, a result though, right? Of, of pranayama? Wouldn't you say it's the... the no, no, there are actual practices. Shambhavi mudra, mm. yoga nidra. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then there are the Vedic practices that belong to... Uh, that do, uh, arise also. But primarily... They're symbolic. How do you practice pranayama? Uh, yes. So you bring up a good point is that pranayama should lead you. Asana should lead you into pranayama. Mm. Pranayama should lead you into pratyahara. Now, Patanjali also makes it clear that you can bypass pratyahara and go straight from pranayama into dharna. 
right? The last sutra on uh, on pranayama that he says is is about pranayama prepare creating a sattvic mind so you can slip into uh, and then he puts in pratyahara. Right? It's like, wait, where did that come from? You've already brought me to meditation. Now you take me back to Pratyahara. Why? Because we need to reinforce it. Yeah. We need to reinforce it. So it took me a while to understand that Pratyahara is in there as a reinforcement to, to uh, what Pranayama has brought to you. It needs to be reinforced before you do your dharana. Let's also remember that the first chapter begins with you being able to do dharana and and shortly step into uh, samadhi so for those of uh, for those who can go into uh, meditation without having all the preparation have at it <laughs> have at it have at it yeah well arun i've kept you for an hour and I think we've only touched the surface of your wisdom, your knowledge, your heart. And I want everyone to know how they can study with you, both in person, possibly online, but also you have all of these courses that have been recorded now, especially during COVID times. You've done so much online. So they could even study with you asynchronously at their own pace where do we find out more? Because I feel certain people are going to want to hear more. Anyone and everyone is free to reach out to me through my through email. Which is? Uh, my website is, is very simple. It's Yoga Rasayana. Well, it's simple <laughs> in the sense that the first part of it is yoga, and the second part of it is a little more complicated. Rasayana means to uh, to rejuvenate, to, to nourish, to yoga, use yoga to nourish ourselves back to health. Look, I'll make it very easy for you. If you Google Arundeva, there's only you, one. <laughs> no, no, no. There's there's tons. Okay. If you Google Arundeva yoga or Arundeva Ayurveda, you'll get me. And we'll put you, your website in the show notes. Okay, perfect. If, if that'll show up, that'll be great. Yes. So yogarasayana.com uh, is very easy. Or Google Arundeva Yoga, Arundeva Ayurveda, I will come up. If you just Google Arundeva, you might get a financier or a cricketer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Arun, for spending this time with us. And I love the depth that you are willing to go with us today. I think it is <laughs> part of yoga. And I think we need to know where this journey is taking us. You know, so many students study chapters one, two, three of the sutra. And then when they get to four, they're like, oh, that's where we're headed. Oh, hell no. <laughs> and what you talked about today is, is within the realm of chapter four of, of where we're headed and why we're doing this in the first place that many of us didn't even know that's, the journey that we were on. What's that all saying? You can't have your cake and eat it too. We want to be at peace and have our desires. You can't do both, <laughs> but it, it's worth, it's worth giving our, or lessening our desires. Let's just put it at that at lessening our desires. It's, it's automatic. As one goes away, the other comes in. Right. It, it will not be a sacrifice. 
it will, it will just be a natural emergence that we don't even have to worry about right now. Right. But it sounds like you're, you're committed to really taking on chapter four with whatever time you have left. (laughs) Well, yes. Why waste the rest of my life? Well, Arun, you're an inspiration and, you know, just such a precious human being to so many of us. And I thank you for your time today. I just enjoy our conversations, Amy. And now we've got one that's recorded. (laughs) No, we usually just do this uh, pontificating between ourselves. So now everyone got to hear what we talk about. (laughs) It's just another conversation you and I have. (laughs) (laughs) Shh, that was supposed to be a secret. Nobody should know that we talk about all this crazy stuff. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Arun. You know, we we began with a chant. So if it's okay with you, and we did chant to the guru. I would like to end with a chant to the Devi. Please. Uh, Devi means goddess for. <laughs> sarva sarupe sarveshe sarva shakti samanvite bhayebhya trahino Devi durge Devi namostate. I really enjoyed this conversation with Arun Deva. And it's helping me to reflect on what is true friendship. Why are we here together? How can we connect? And one of the things that I've really appreciated about my friendship with Arun is that there's a lot of depth to it. When we do call each other and just have a chat, schedule our tea time together, very rarely does it stay superficial. We love to talk about spiritual matters, mental, emotional, physical things that are going on in the world with each other. Sometimes we get together and on Zoom and solve the problems of the world together. And I love having a friend that will go deep with me, that we can really get into why are we here? Do I matter? What can I do to be of service to the world? And how can yoga and Ayurveda not only change each one of us from the inside out, but then how can that spread to all of humanity? So I really hope each of you has a friend that you can do this with And if not, I'll just plant a little seed in your mind that it's time to get one. It's time to get a friend that you feel completely at ease with, that you feel peaceful when you're together, that allows you to be exactly who you are without judgment, and you allow them to be who they are without judgment, and that you feel safe together. And also that you feel joyful to have a person like this in your life. So that's what I'd like to leave you with today is just reflecting on what is true friendship and how can we find it and setting intentions to find more friends like Arun and Amy. (laughs) So thank you for listening. 
we appreciate that you are a loyal listener to the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. We'd like to give you a gift each week of an infographic. All you have to do is sign up in the show notes below and it will be sent to you each week. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate you. Thank you for listening to our show today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the episode with a friend or colleague. We're so grateful you're willing to share. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.